Welcome to the podcast. I'm Eric Silverman. And I'm Jane Crosby. We're really excited. This week, um, we got a chance to talk to Rand Fishkin. I mean, you know, really, really kind of foremost voice or first mover in a lot of um, uh, SEO software, founder of Moz, uh, writer of a, a book called Lost and Founder, um, currently president and CEO of a company called Spark Toro, which is doing some cool stuff with audience insights and just a, a really interesting guy. Yeah, he was fascinating. I really enjoyed talking to Rand. I think there were a lot of kind of corollaries, both similar and, and different too, between the interview we had with Rand and the one we had earlier in the series with uh, Matthew Sweezy from Salesforce. I think in a lot of ways, Matthew is truly a contrarian. And when we think about context marketing, it's not following people around arbitrarily with retargeting ads. It's meeting them where they really want to hear from you and actually helping them, not just serving up another ad, where I think Rand offers some really practical and great advice for how we embrace some of the new tools and trends that are out there in digital marketing and actually use them to to their advantage or to your advantage as a marketer. Um, so it was interesting to see how both offered really, really great perspective. I do think, again, Rand's just offers a little bit more about how we embrace the tools that are out there and the the Rand interview, you know, got me thinking a lot about unconventional wisdom, right? And um, and and so so Rand, you know, I'm being reductive a little bit, and our listeners will hear in, in the interview a lot more detail. But but really, the idea of Google and Facebook as this duopoly who, in large part, appeal to our most banal instincts in terms of content consumption, right? Like the divisiveness of the political narrative and and other things, and and. And really, the challenge being how to cut through that clutter. And, and I was inspired by some of, you know, really some fresh thinking, I thought, in terms of how to go about, about doing that. Uh, what, what were your takeaways, Jane? The biggest takeaway for me, I think, is really making sure that you're embracing a number of channels and a number of different tactics when you think about how to reach your ideal audience. So you really can't rely solely on paid Facebook. When we think about social media in particular, you do need to build an organic following, whether it's Facebook or Instagram of people who are like-minded individuals interested in your product and share information that's relevant to them. Alongside that, you really need a great paid search strategy, a great website strategy, and a great consumer experience on the other side of that. So when you do get an audience, they can convert. Yeah, it, it it's really really good perspective. Um, and it got, it got me thinking a little bit about this idea of appealing to amplifiers and how we kind of build audience with, with our content. And, you know, a lot of the kind of traditional thinking is around, you know, link building strategy, amplifier strategy, that's really focused on high visibility or, or kind of headline brands that you align yourself with. And one of the things that Rand, I think, really keyed on well was this idea that you just touched on, Jane, this idea of individual followers, like-minded individuals. And I think you made the point, right? This connects back pretty well to some of the discussion we had with Sweezy about context marketing. Yeah, really meeting people where they're at is so critical in building consumer loyalty and building relationships. And I think the takeaway for healthcare marketers is that, you know, before my time in healthcare, even when you were asked to grow the cardiovascular service line, you throw a picture of a cardiovascular surgeon on a billboard. Maybe you put an article about it in your quarterly newsletter. 
over the past few years, we've really seen a shift to digital strategies um, using paid search and paid social media and SEO basics to drive engagement. I think what we're seeing now is that all of those things are coming together and we're looking at horizontal campaign strategies that take a variety of tools and skill sets and challenges that we're trying to solve and create cohesive campaigns that build better relationships with consumers and meet people where they're at, whether it's driving down the highway, uh, on their way to work, listening to podcasts, browsing social media, whatever it might be. um, We're getting much better at creating strategies that appeal to everyone. Probably no surprise, you know, a lot of this connects to Rand's current um, business venture, a company called Spark Toro, which is fun. You know, if our listeners get a chance to go in and take a look at the types of audiences they're trying to reach and what the Spark Toro tool set pulls up, about 18% of your audience listens to this podcast and 12% of your audience reads these blogs. It's really interesting insights around the audiences that healthcare marketers are often trying to reach to give thought to how we put some shape around content strategy and Spark Charles doing some really interesting things there. Yeah, I agree. With no further ado, let's jump into the interview with Rand Fishkin. Thanks for listening. Well, Rand Fishkin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Jason, thank you so much for having me. You bet. Absolutely. I've had the pleasure of of reading a lot of a lot of your material. I um, was was spending some time on on your website today. You've got a new book, um, which uh, is Lost and Founder, which has got you know a kind of really transparent view into what it's like to to build a business. But maybe for some of our listeners who don't know you, talk to us a little bit about about how you got here and 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 what you're doing uh, today. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So I. Um... I'll give you the short version of the last 20 years, (laughs) which is I dropped out of college, so I have no degree, and started designing websites in the uh, early 2000s, 2001. I joined my mom's small business. My mom, Jillian, uh, had been running a you know, marketing, small business marketing consultancy for 20 years, since 1981. And um, we struggled mightily in the early 2000s, went deeply into debt, had to hide it from my dad. That was a whole thing. Uh, And and, um, eventually stumbled on SEO, uh, search engine optimization, which which most folks who know me in the web marketing world or or the broader marketing world know me from building a company called Moz. And Moz was the outshoot of that, you know, dropping out experience and finding SEO and uh, starting a blog around it. That became a software company. Uh, we raised venture funding over the course of what seven, seven or eight years while I was uh, I, I was made the CEO, and over the course of seven eight years raised uh, almost thirty million dollars, and got that company to a relatively successful place, sort of a, a very successful place in a non venture backed world and a stuck in the middle, frustrating plateau for a venture backed company, um, and we can talk about the benefits and downfalls of, of taking institutional capital if, if we want to. I don't know if that's of interest to healthcare marketers, but don't do it if you can. Um, <laughs> and uh, I stepped down as CEO from Moz in 2014 and stayed at the company another four years, which I, for better or worse, uh, left in 2018 and yes, published Lost and Founder and started this new company, Spark Toro, um, which is around, rather than search engine optimization, Spark Toro is around 
audience intelligence. So helping marketers uh, and market researchers and entrepreneurs and product folks understand their audience's behaviors and characteristics and what they read and watch and follow and listen to and talk about uh, so that all of us can do better targeting um, of our audiences in all the places they pay attention instead of just throwing money at Google and Facebook, which I am not a fan of, of monopoly power, as uh, anyone who follows me on Twitter might know. Good, good stuff. And and so, so I was reading some of your content um, on SparkToro and you know, I, honestly, I was really, really struck and refreshed by some of the real kind of, pardon me for this characterization, you might not agree with it, but like unorthodox perspective oh, yeah. in terms of, you know, and, and if Google is the orthodoxy, you know, then, then, then you definitely kind of railing against that in some way. Talk to us a little bit about kind of what you, what you see as the biggest pitfalls in conventional approach to audience intelligence and, 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 and SEO. Sure. Yeah. So I, I, you know, my sense is that a ton of marketers, myself included, I was like this. I'm sure you folks find plenty of marketers who are like this, right? You're essentially biased by the, you know, the media landscape you live in and sort of the big sources of influence around you. And so when you start a new marketing campaign, you think, all right, well, uh, what are the keywords that people are searching for? And, uh, you know, what Facebook ad targeting can I do? And I'll buy a bunch of Google ads and maybe I'll do some display in YouTube and I'll, I'll throw some money at Facebook and Instagram and I'll hopefully reach you know, the right audiences and then I'll refine it over time. And this methodology does work. Like let's, let's not kid ourselves. If you're good at, at Facebook advertising, if you're good at writing copy and headlines and converting landing pages, you're good at uh, collecting people's emails and then remarketing and retargeting them, th this system can work. Absolutely it can. But, but there's three things going on, right? The first one is you are not building a competitive advantage in your marketing stack. There's no way you are be because everybody else is doing exactly the same thing, right? Everyone is targeting people on Facebook. They're targeting people on Instagram. They're targeting Google ads. They're targeting the Google Display Network. They're putting ads on YouTube. These are the standard best practices. And so everyone is doing them. And so... Yes, you could build a business that has a return on investment, but it will not be a competitive advantage for you. You are not building a moat through marketing, right? You're just doing the same marketing everybody else is doing. The second thing that's definitely true is that uh, you are almost certainly doing what I call boulder pushing marketing, meaning each, um, each new customer that you attract, each new conversion that you get takes a approximately as much time, energy, effort, and dollars as the last one, right? So you're not building systems of efficiency where each revolution of the marketing cycle you engage in produces e either more output per effort, or it's less effort per output, or it's less dollars per output, right? So you're not gaining efficiency. And over time, I mean, you know, with uh, with today's announcement from Google, for example, you know, since we're we're talking about this uh, on on September second, and Google has just announced that they're going to pull uh, the keyword data away from paid advertisers, so that you uh, you no longer see keywords that send you small amounts of traffic in your Google Ads account, which is 
insanely frustrating because we all know that we use those to do negative matching for keyword types and figure out you know which um, keywords we might target in organic search and yada yada right so so Google's made that much harder and every time they do these things right every time Facebook reduces reach every time more advertisers join you lose it so that's the second and then the final one I admit not everyone will agree with me on this but I don't think that. Facebook and Google are forces for good in our world and universe, right? I think that they, I think that they amplify polarization, for example, in the United States, right? We, the four of us are all very geographically diverse. I'm sure we come from communities where people have very different uh, opinions about, you know, politics and, and social ideals and those kinds of things. And that has been magnified massively in the last 10 years, primarily by the reach and uh, optimization for engagement, which which produces a lot of hatred and vitriol and team sports like behavior between people who have different opinions, right? And it, it amplifies misinformation. It amplifies conspiracy theories. So I think that's very negative. I also think even if you don't care about that stuff, you probably care about economic forces and factors, right? You probably care about your business doing well. I love underdogs. I love small businesses in medium businesses. I hate monopoly power because it pushes in income inequality up and it pushes opportunity for everybody else down. And you can see this. We are in, it seems like we're in the golden age of startups. There are fewer new companies in the United States uh, in the last five years and the five years before that and the five years before that. We are in the, the trough, the lowest point in 50 years. Right in 1970, we had so many more new businesses, wow. small businesses, Americans working at new and small businesses, and that number just keeps going down. Right since about the late 70s, early 80s, that that sucks. I don't think that's good. It's not healthy for our economy. It means that the government has to, you know, prop up big businesses when they fail and have hard times, like like you know the the automakers a few years ago and real estate sure. businesses and finance companies and and now more recently airlines. No good. So. Those three things, those are the big three reasons why I would encourage everybody to think about other channels. So, it begs <laughs> after that long good. rant. No, no, it's really good. And it kind of begs the question, like, so what's a, what's a healthcare content marketer to do, right? And so, so in the one, the one kind of silver lining that I look for is in this current environment where everything has become so insular, you know, largely due to COVID, right? I mean, in a lot of ways, things have been walled off, things have, have been shut up. So it provides this opportunity for a resurgence in a way of the um, kind of American economy in a more insular way, which seems like it would beg this opportunity for startups to resurge. And so we emerge from the, the fish can trough, we'll call it, right? Of, of kind of. <laughs> oh God, I don't want to be named for that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we can call it something else. But anyway, so there's this this opportunity for marketers to start thinking about how they build the moat, how they stop pushing the boulder, how they kind of break away from from the monopoly. So so point us to the horizon a little bit. You know, I this this idea of pushing the boulder. Kind of here's the softball, right? Like so, so Rand, what's the alternative to pushing this boulder up the hill? Yeah, I, I mean, very simply, rather than uh, having each of your efforts only produce the same outcome each time, uh, what you want is a is a system that gains efficiency over time. I 
I personally like the analogy of the flywheel, right? The, the sort of, you know, industrial age machine that, that um, stores energy, right? And each, each revolution, the, the first revolution is incredibly difficult. But then as it, uh, over time, as you have subsequent revolutions of this giant uh, wheel, you, you gain efficiency be, through inertia, right? And that, that's kind of the way I think of marketing and branding and, you know, building, um, building a great uh, a marketing practice, right? Is that essentially I, I do a marketing thing and then that marketing thing reaches more people uh, at a lower cost than it did the last time I did that marketing thing. And my perception has been that there's a number of great ways to do that, it, that it, it is very open to creativity. You could, you could build a podcast, right, where every guest you get is a little bit better than the last guest and the audio engineering is a little bit better and the uh, the the quality of it is a little bit better and the people the number of people who subscribe to the podcast grows each time and so every time you produce a new podcast or whatever a, a new blog post a new newsletter a new um, yeah yeah email you know marketing works like this uh, content marketing works like this brand marketing works like this each time you do that new marketing thing it reaches a few more people you get a little bit better at it. You figure out what your audience wants more. They resonate with it more. Each brand touch produces, you know, a higher probability that people will convert with you in the future. That that is a beautiful thing. And and you know what's amazing about this? When you do those things, when you invest in that marketing flywheel, yes, it helps with all sorts of channels, but it also helps with the advertising that you do on the duopoly. Right? When you go to Facebook and you run Facebook ads, the number one thing that's going to predict whether you have you know, high click-through rates, uh, low cost per conversion, high engagement rates, the number one thing is brand recognition, right? If people know your brand, like your brand, trust your brand, have previously interacted positively with your brand, you are going to do pretty darn well with those audiences on Facebook, on Google, on YouTube, through display, through retargeting and remarketing. So... This, this is an awesome thing to invest in. I think the challenge is that it's not easy, right? It is, it is not easy to do because it is uh, complex at the start. Instead of going to one or two platforms, you know, Facebook ads and Google ads, you have to go, all right, well, what does my audience pay attention to? Uh, where can I go reach them? How do I build relationships with all the people and publications and sources of influence that you know, that are reaching them through whatever platforms and mediums they might be on. That work alone is ridiculously hard. I don't know if any of you have tried to uh, break into your customers' houses and steal their phones and get their passwords so that you can, you know, download and look at everything that they watch and follow. But it is, it's illegal and unethical and lockpicking alone is challenging. Sure. I'm, I'm kidding. You don't have to do that. <laughs> If only, if only there were millions of people who posted all their information about everything they watch, listen, right. read, follow to online, you know, then it would be much easier. But well, and so maybe, maybe kind of just picking up on 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 that thread and what you're doing at, at Spark Toro, you know, if you think wait, wait, about how did you know this was about Spark Toro? <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> so, so when I think about the the hospital environment and the healthcare marketing audience uh, in particular, you know, we've seen, um, you know, some studies say 70% of consumers are concerned about going into a healthcare consumption environment because they don't want to get, they don't want to get COVID-19. We've seen, you know, incredible drop-offs, not just of elective 
you know, procedures that consumers might might engage in, but big drop-offs in consumption of emergency medicine as well. And not not just because there are less emergencies happening. Like if you drill into cardiac events in America, there's been a decline of about 50%, 40 to 50% of cardiac events going into the ER. And that's not because it's not happening. It's because people are putting off care for really, really serious mm-hmm. stuff. So mm-hmm. when you think about the lens that you're looking through in terms of audience insights, what's the advice you would give to healthcare marketers for how they would think about meaningfully connecting with this audience, um, you know, to help guide, guide what happens next? Yeah. So my, you know, my sense in the healthcare field in particular, I think you have unique challenges that are faced almost nowhere else. Um, And uh, there, there is a bit of classic best practice strategy that I would absolutely apply, right? The, The core of marketing is finding out who your audience is, finding the messages that resonate with that audience, and then telling those messages in the places where your audience pays attention. That's that's the fundamental core of marketing, right? And um, it's it's weird that they don't teach that in college. I don't know why. I, I'm, I was sure I took a marketing class. I didn't. Right. Um, but the, doing those things, right, is is exactly what healthcare marketers need to do right now, right? They they need to discover okay, who are who is this audience who is afraid to come in, is putting off critical care or important health care, is putting off procedures that they almost certainly should be engaging in, not, not only because it's economically beneficial for us, but because it is very important for them to have long, healthy, happy lives. And where are the places where they're paying attention right now, right? Where are they receiving information that's making them fearful or more confident? What are they watching and paying attention to? Who are they watching and paying attention to? And then how can I get this important message in front of them in ways that will resonate? So I, you know, Eric, I've seen, my sense is there's sort of two kinds of consumers of, of, I don't know, this kind of persuasive information. Um, there's probably more, but on the spectrum, I, I think about it too, right? One side of the spectrum is people who need broad statistical information from high trustworthy, notable, um, credible journalistic sources, right? Or or scientifically credible sources, right? And that that resonates with me very much, right? I'm I'm someone who sort of, you know, I'll hear whatever, a million secondhand and firsthand stories and be like, yeah, 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 yeah. Now show me the stats, right? Whenever, whenever someone says like, what, oh, what are your fears? What are you really afraid of? And I say, uh, statistically probable death. That is the thing that really scares me, right? So airplane flying, no, that doesn't scare me at all. But, you know, whatever it is, bungee jumping in uh, uh, unlicensed facilities, super dick. <laughs> right. Flying in helicopters, like, I, no way I'm doing it. Um and then on the other side, right, are people who feel the opposite way that I do, right? They they resonate with individual stories from people they know and trust, right? So it is not, look, I saw the stats. Yes, I know that by wearing a mask and going to a hospital, you know, my odds of getting or spreading COVID are extremely low, but stats don't work on me. You're not going to convince me with your fa- fancy math and science, right? Like, but... I heard that my aunt, who I know and love, she went to the hospital. She had a good experience. It was fine. She came back. She's happy, happy and healthy. Okay, maybe it's safe for me too, right? I, and I think there, you know, 
look, we all are influenced by both of these things. As much as I'd love to believe that I'm, you know, whatever, statistically sound and, and minded on, on this stuff, I'm sure that I've been biased by, you know, the experience of people around me. I'm sure we all have, right? And you might not believe in, you might say, oh, well, our customers, our audience, whatever it is, they don't believe in science and statistics and those kinds of things, but, but probably they're influenced somewhat by it, right? So you find the messages that resonate with your audience, the people who are, you know, whatever it is, if you're um, offering mammograms or, or you're offering, um, um, oh God, what was, what did Chadwick Boseman just die from? Uh, um, uh, cancer, right? Colon uh, cancer. Colon cancer, right? And they were, you know, they were talking about the statistics about how Black Americans in particular, you know, get hit often by colon cancer younger than uh, than other Americans do and how, you know, the, the recommended checkup is often too late, right? And so you you need to go in and, and get that. And that that's the kind of story, like, uh, you know, everything I read about him and, and see about him just makes me cry because it seems like he was such an amazing human being. Um, and it it is this incredible tragedy to lose him. But that is a story, right? That is a story, a notable story that might resonate with a community of people who who desperately need, right? All of us need to do it. I mean, Crap! I should probably go in myself. I don't know. Is it as un, is it as unpleasant as everybody says it is? I don't know what a colon cancer check is like. Uh, well, the prep the prep is the hardest part. Everything everything else is a breeze. You'll see okay. nothing to worry about. Nothing if 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 the story of other people's experience helps you, I can I can tell you all about it. And you got nothing, okay. You got nothing to worry about Rand. Trust I look forward to that podcast. Eric and Rand discuss <laughs> butt stuff. <laughs> I'm I'm just hopeful that the process evolved significantly by the time I'm old enough to need a colonoscopy. That wouldn't it be great to have medical science make leaps and jumps far ahead? That's a yeah. beautiful thing. So so yes, right. I think our job is to find as marketers to find the messages that resonate, right? So we can talk to the people who are coming in and say, "Hey, were you scared and what helped you get over that?" right? We can go out to communities and and listen to people on, you know, through whatever it is, through social listening and through reading comments and through uh surveys and through interviews and uh we can have those conversations, right? And look at the aggregate data as well and say, "Okay, we see that the concern is around X and Y and Z. How do we message that? Okay, we're gonna we're gonna have individual stories and testimonials from people anonymously or uh, cited, and we're gonna put those in our newsletter. We're gonna put them in our social feed. We're gonna tell those stories. We're gonna talk to the local news and say, hey, we would really appreciate. Like we're you know we're a local hospital here in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and. Given Chadwick Boseman's recent passing, we wonder if you would be up for doing a story with us to talk about the importance of getting checked, especially right now, because a lot of people are afraid right now. And maybe you would be willing to send a reporter down and have them come through the hospital and show people that it's safe. Maybe you would be willing to share some of these statistics. And here, let me put you in touch with, you know, this uh, local found whatever national foundation that that collects data on this stuff. Find the messages that resonate, tell them in the places that you know your audience is paying attention, and you will be able to influence people in in positive ways. I mean, uh, the difference between the United States and Canada on COVID, or the difference between the United States and New Zealand, is not that, you know, we're worse people. Like, we're, we're not like awful, terrible people who don't, right? It's just marketing, 
It's marketing. In New Zealand, they had a very effective, very efficient marketing machine that, that uh, told people all the right kinds of things at the right time, in the right places, and we didn't, right? I, I, I don't think Americans are uniquely, I don't know, awful or deserving or you know, did something wrong. Like We just didn't have the, the same marketing effectiveness um, from the top on down and through all the organizations that we listen to. And and we could, right? And so that that's our job, I think, as healthcare marketers in particular, because we're in the business of saving lives and helping people live better lives. Absolutely. It's a really interesting perspective, Rand. And you've got me thinking about something that I've actually been considering quite a bit over the past few months, which is with the emergence of digital marketing. And I don't know if this is unique to healthcare, if it extends to retail and CPG and other industries too, but I think when healthcare organizations first started realizing that they had to do digital marketing, um, it created two separate teams, right? You had your digital marketers who were thinking about data and analytics and how to use new tools. And then you had your storytellers and your traditional marketers and your right. brand marketing team. And never the twain shall meet. Ugh. Exactly. And I think that's a challenge because Google search is great, but how do you get people to start searching for your brand and the services that you're offering? And content marketing is great, but there's a lot of content out there today. And so how do you make yours stand above? And the answer is creativity. Um, and there's a few brands that I think have been really creative through this pandemic and helped their organizations be successful. I think my favorite example is Ford launching the Bronco on OJ's birthday. And there's a few others like that where God. people have really creatively positioned their brand. But how do we as marketers, especially in healthcare, start to bridge that gap and get digital marketers to be more creative about how they're executing their strategies? Yeah, yeah. No, uh, Jane, I think you're you're absolutely right. And I I will admit to a decent amount of guilt. I think in all of the education I ever did around, you know, whatever, Whiteboard Fridays and the Moz blog about SEO for what, 17 years of my career, Um it was extremely data focused, right? Here's these keywords. Here's how to optimize these pages. Here's how to get links to them. Here's how to do technical SEO. And, and that kind of stuff does not help with the messaging side of marketing. It does not help with the creativity and the, the changing of minds. And I think it was, you know, it was only late in my career that I realized that, oh my gosh, a hundred times as many people search for whatever, Honda as search for new cars. Oh, wait a minute. This is this is this is not no matter how high I rank for that, I, I'm gonna be a tiny slice of the market, right? And so and I think that you know the, the same is very true in field after field, right? Uh, I, I think one of the ways to uh, change that conversation is to look at your funnels, right? So web marketers are fundamentally familiar with and accustomed to looking at the numbers, right, in our uh, in our funnels. How many visits did we get? What were the sources of those visits? Uh, did they make it to the, the conversion landing page? Did they sign up for the email? Did they, you know, follow through and, and buy something, whatever? Did they make an appointment online or off? All those kinds of things. And uh, because those stats are core to our work, I think oftentimes we get disconnected from the broader picture of how do I tell the right message in the right places to convince the right people. However, when you invest in those things and you see the numbers results, that can oftentimes change people's minds. And I found there's two ways to do this. One 
convince people to run experiments, right? So you convince web marketers, hey, let's experiment with a PR strategy. So the next quarter, we're going to invest in press and PR, and we're going to watch the two quarters after and see how that performs for us, right? How, how many mind, hearts and minds are changing and how much demand is generated and what's sort of the lift over what we would have otherwise expected things to do. But let's do that. The second is competitive, right? You go find a competitor who is doing a great job of this stuff, right? Who's already investing in a bunch of press and PR and creative marketing and messaging and and then you point your whatever executive directors and your CMO and your VP of marketing to them and you say, well, you can see what they are doing and you can see the results, right? Here's the search for our brand, you know, in Google Trends. Here's a search for their brand in Google Trends. Here's, uh, here's how much traffic similar web estimates we get. Here's how much traffic similar web estimates they get. Those kinds of things, right? And so what's, what's the difference? Well, one of the differences is obviously this investment that they're making. Let's look across the board, people who are making it, people who are not. All right. It seems like we have a lot of lift opportunity uh, if we go make those kinds of investments. And I've seen both of those strategies work, experimentation and competitive pressure. That makes sense. We're seeing that work for a lot of our clients too. I think sometimes the challenge is getting the go-ahead to start experimenting, but more and more healthcare marketing C-suites, I think, are seeing the value of digital marketing for the for the competitive reason and that everyone else is doing that. So, so they better start as well. Um, this has been a really, really interesting conversation for me, Rand. I, I really appreciate a lot of the things that you're sharing. Um, I agree that Google and Facebook own so much of a digital marketer's budget right now, and I'd love to see that start evolve. Uh, what are some of your favorite tools right now or alternative channels that you're seeing people find success with? Yeah. Um, so my experience has been that it is widely varied based on your industry and, and your geography and, and your practice, right? So there's no sort of, oh yeah, everybody should just throw a bunch of money at podcasts or at webinars or at... Um, uh, you know, starting a new blog or at an email newsletter. Th these different practices work differently for different folks, right? I'm in B2B SaaS. Uh, you folks are obviously in consumer healthcare, primarily consumer healthcare, right? And those fields are very different. So my my strong advice is not to take a one size fits all approach or or look at kind of a, you know, oh well, Gary Vaynerchuk said that. Instagram Live is so hot right now. We got to invest in Instagram Live. I don't know. what He's probably talking about TikTok. But regardless, right, that, uh, that is not my recommendation. My recommendation instead is uh, to do three things, right? One is to survey your audience if you possibly can, right? So you have, you have customers, you have a database. You can ask them, hey, what, what are you paying attention to? Where are you getting your information? Those kinds of things. Number two is you can interview, right? That, the one-to-one -one types of conversations where you, could, where you can have those those. Uh, get that data back. And I really like the the depth and sort of color that you get from interviews in addition to the statistical data that you can get from uh, which one, from, from surveys. And then uh, I would also use tools, right? So I would, you know, whatever, you run your surveys with um, maybe Google surveys or Typeform. I like Typeform personally, but uh, you could use SurveyMonkey or whatever it is. Uh, the last one I like is looking at sort of uh, aggregated data. This is a nascent but emerging field called audience intelligence. Um, there's a few. So SparkToro is in this space. So you could certainly use us. Um, 
you can you you know you can use us for free because we we offer free accounts. But um, another one that offers free accounts that I like a lot is SimilarWeb. I mentioned them earlier because they have uh, competitive data that, that they gather through the clickstream and they uh, show that on their site. And you can if you plug in any of your competitors' websites or your own website. You can scroll down to the sort of the bottom of the free report that they offer, and they will show you similar websites. So basically, people who visit your site also visit X and Y and Z. If you go into your Google Analytics or whatever analytics package you're using, your analytics data, and you can see that a website, um, maybe it's a local news broadcaster, had had a story about you, and it sent you some really great traffic. You can then plug that website, right? Anybody who sent you good traffic, you can plug their website into something like a similar web or, or a SparkToro, right? And you can see data about, oh, these this audience also visits these other sources. So if you've got a great source of, you know, traffic, this is, you know, a very fast way to discover new additional sources. And then, of course, if you have the time and bandwidth, you can do it manually too, right? You can go visit the, um, you could take, for example, an email database of your customers and send them through a service. I I like um, full contact a lot, but Clearbit is also available for this. Uh, You can basically send it through those services, get back a list of the social and web URLs for you know, whatever, however many people in your database uh, have public social and web profiles, and then go visit or or crawl and aggregate data from there, right? This is essentially, this is the legal, ethical, digital equivalent of breaking into their houses and stealing their phone. <laughs> right? um, and and that, that, that data is great, right? People are putting it out there. They're basically showing on their public Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and uh, Twitter pages, what they do, what they pay attention to. Um, this is how SparkToro's database is built. And this is how a bunch of smart companies are aggregating data about their audience so that they know where to reach them. That's great stuff. Yeah, Rand, I, w- I was just thinking that we've talked a lot about building an audience and generating traffic um, and the tools to get people to your your content and your information. One of the things that I think about that you might have unique perspective on uh, through your work at SparkToro is how important is the experience once people get there? I know for me personally, if I get to a website and I can't either get someone on the phone within 10 seconds to quickly answer my question or schedule online, I'm out. Um, I might be an anomaly, but I, I think a lot of millennials and even older generations too are in that spot right now. Any perspective on that? Yeah, yeah. No, you and my 94-year-old grandfather are exactly the same in this regard, right? I don't want to use the website button. He calls me button. Uh, I, want to, I want to talk to somebody. He's, he's Jewish and from New York, right? So he's... Uh, but so, um, yes, I think, I think this is a really, really good reason to um, have some uh, conversion rate optimization process, landing page process in your you know, web marketing uh, um, practice. You you want to understand not only, you know, how do I get people to my website? And I'm glad we're talking about our websites so often and so infuriatingly, frustratingly, uh, people talk about, well, I want to get them to my Google local business page or my, you know, Facebook page or my um, whatever it is, my our Instagram 
and those are not properties you own and you do not get to control the experience and you cannot really improve a lot of things in those places. But on your website, you can have you know, a live chatbot if, if you find that that resonates with your audience. You can have a big call us button that dominates the, you know, the lower half of a mobile screen so that you know, for folks like Jane and my grandfather Seymour, they can just you know, <laughs> click and, and get right to the person they wanna to get to. Um, and if you find that those are not the things that resonate, that instead people need to browse and get a lot of information, right? That they can do that as well. We find with SparkToro that people, nobody wants to get on the phone with us, right? I, I like to think I'm a decent conversationalist, but people don't want to call me, right? They just want to try the product and use the, you know, see if SparkToro works for them and web marketers phone call, who, who calls people anymore? That's terrifying. Um, so you have to know how your audience behaves and then be able to optimize for that. And I, I think that there's a lot of great services out there. Uh, one of the companies that has done some very good work on this front is Unbounce. Uh, and in fact, I think just this morning they launched this like um, cool landing page uh, analysis tool, free landing page analysis tool, uses machine learning on a bunch of landing pages. So if you if you have a landing page like that, and you're wondering, hey, what's going to convert versus not? You might run it through their uh, their free tool there, but there's lots of services like that. So, yes, I yeah, I am in full agreement that many times there's so many places to screw up here. Right? <laughs> we didn't attract the right audience. Oh, we didn't tell them the right message. We didn't tell it in the right place. Oh, once they we told we did all those things, then we got them to our site and. It took them seven minutes to find a phone number. It took them, you know, ten minutes to make an appointment. You can lose people throughout this funnel, and and that's why digital marketing has so much growth opportunity. I know we've only got a few more minutes left um, with you. I had kind of two two more questions that I wanted to ask. So so one is on our podcast, a lot of our guests have talked about the importance of being nimble, the importance of uh, kind of adaptation, trying new things. You wrote an article that I was reading about um, the algorithm and attribution kind of challenging the ability to be creative anymore. And I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about that. It was really, really great insight, I thought. So th this happens across multiple different platforms and different algorithms, right? So Facebook has their kind of newsfeed algorithm. And, you know, for better or worse, I my opinion is it's generally for worse, right? Things that do extremely well on Facebook are generally come from like two families. One is here are photos of our new adorable children, right? That that tends to work well. Uh, slash, you know, so sort of Instagram. I don't know if um, if all of you have have popped open Instagram lately, but on the on the search page, what they call discover. That there's the they they launched their TikTok competitor, right? And so all it is, every time I open it, you know, the rest of my Discover page is sort of things that Instagram has learned that I will like. But the the top is always people wearing not nearly enough clothing dancing. Right. <laughs> um, and right. So so this is the other thing that tends, right, that they they tend to show. And and then the um the other side of that is uh essentially what I what I think Americans would generally call like politically and socially divisive issues, mm -hmm. right? So things that they think will get you angry and upset. And because when they get you angry and upset, they know that they create more engagement, right? If they can get you to comment on whatever, your crazy uncle's, you know, Facebook, you know, totally uh, 
uh, insane Facebook post, they know that you will come back and check Facebook many more times to see if your uncle replied or if your aunt agreed with you or you know whatever it is, right? That's their um, that's the optimization for engagement that they have on the Google side. Um, so that that's a similar thing exists in YouTube, right? And you you can read about sort of Congress and how they're they're trying to um, see if you know YouTube will respond to misinformation claims and uh, all these kinds of things. And and then uh, in in Google search, it's a very different kind of algorithm. Rather than optimize, it is also optimizing for engagement, but it's optimizing for engagement in terms of the um, solves the searcher's problem. And because of that, a lot of what I'd call, yeah, more creative marketers, uh, journalists and writers and authors and humorists don't really have the opportunity to put forward their most creative work because uh, Google's algorithm relies on a machine learning system that um, prioritizes a relatively strict set of standards and and vastly more strict in healthcare, by the way, than in almost any other sphere, right? So you you will not see the, if someone searches for, for um, colon cancer, for example, even though it might get high engagement and have a very high click-through rate and be a, a great read and be uh, a really relevant article, you're unlikely to see, you know, an Atlantic piece about Chadwick Boseman um, ranking well for colon cancer, even though even if that might be a great piece to show people, because Google has this um, sort of structure around prioritizing a, a relatively limited set of sources that have high expertise and high trust and have displayed high accuracy information in the past, uh, and so you know you you get a lot of limitations on your creativity because you're optimizing for these kinds of algorithms. And I think, unfortunately, these algorithms train us to bias toward them, right? We as marketers are trained to build and create things. We're even trained as human beings on what to share, right? If you if you go on Facebook uh, and you share, hey, I made an amazing spaghetti carbonara last night, and here's a photo of it. Oh, okay. It's kind of nice, you know. You might get a few likes, but if you go on Facebook and say, uh, "It turns out the lizard people and the vampires in the pizza dungeon are," you know, that gets very high engagement. And so you are trained as a human being to write about lizard people and pizza dungeons, and not about the lovely meal that you and your family made last night, right? And so I think we we struggle a little bit as um, as creators and amplifiers and as marketers trying to optimize for the algorithms while still serving our needs and what's ethical and telling the stories right, right telling the sorts of right messages in right places to right sources. Which, to be honest, this is one of the other reasons I kind of love going to other publications non-algorithmically driven publications, right? If you go to a local news outlet and you say, hey, do you want to do that story about, you know, getting checked for colon cancer? You know, you, you're not optimizing for an algorithm, right? You're talking to a human being and that human being would say, oh, that is important. That is worthwhile. Let's cover that. It's really interesting that you brought up the changes with Instagram, Rand. I noticed the TikTok version in Instagram and it's annoying. I also noticed that there's the suggested posts in my feed. So I see maybe three of my friends post something, a handful of ads, and then suggested posts. 
I hate it. Can't figure out how to get rid of it. And then the stories, which used to be really interesting, really fun, are now all politics. Do you think that Instagram is going to learn from the mistakes Facebook made and make some changes there? Or do you think they're just going to lose people? They're really close to losing me. So here's the bad news. Instagram's algorithm, like Facebook's, right? They're owned by, they're both owned by Facebook, right? So they're run by Facebook. It's the same, same backend machine learning systems. And uh, when you see these things, I think the, you know, sort of the, the perception that you and I might have, right, Jane, is like, hey, you, you Instagram are losing me, Jane, Rand, like, I don't like this. But the only reason that they're showing it to us is because it's working on lots of other people. If it was not working on lots of people at scale, they would not do it. And so I think the, you know, the tragic thing to realize is sort of, you know, oh, oh, it's not, it's not them. It's me. Like I'm, I'm getting too smart and sophisticated for this optimizing for engagement algorithm. And then the question is, right, can, I think the broader question, and this is, you know, this gets into large scale human ethics is like, can human beings overcome machine learning systems that are built to essentially attack their, you know, their, their cortex and, and tap into their emotional desires and, you know, play to their addiction behaviors. I don't know if as a species, we're good enough at (laughs) fighting against that, right? That's been um, very challenging for us uh, throughout humanity's history. So that, that's going to be a, um, a large scale species wide challenge. We'll, We'll see. The, you know, the other option, right, of course, is that we say, we as, as sort of citizens of democracy say, we don't like this. We don't want you to play these games with us. And we would like to regulate you in some fashion, right? And we've done that before with, I don't know, lawn darts, right? We're like, lawn darts, they're fun, but they're too dangerous. You, you know, you, you got to get rid of them. Or everybody has to wear a seatbelt, right? You want You want to drive in a car, you wanted to be said, you got to wear a seatbelt, right? And we emissions testing and airbags and blah, blah, blah. And here's the, all the things that you have to do for a flight check before you, the 737 is allowed to take off. And the, those are great, right? Like, I think it's pretty awesome. I, I love having the government involved in my business. It makes life wonderful and safe and <laughs> livable, right? And I, I know there are people who feel differently, but uh, I, I personally think that it might be a good idea to have good, smart regulations I also, you know, on that front, do agree with folks who say, well, look at what the EU did with GDPR. And did that really make the internet better? And did that help us? Or did that just make sure that Google and Facebook would always be the dominant properties and no one would be able to compete with them because no one could get over the privacy hurdles and standards except those big companies? I 100% agree with you. That piece of legislation, which was strongly influenced by lobbyists from Facebook and Google, has been destructive for entrepreneurship and opportunity um, across the technology board. So, hey, yes, <laughs> when government gets involved, it can be awesome. You can get seatbelts or you can get GDPR. <laughs> <Right. Like, laughs> got to watch out. <laughs> two sides of the same coin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so before we run out of time, you know, this is this is probably decidedly kind of lighter in terms of subject matter. But I, but I read the article in the. Seattle sometimes or, or whatever it was, but um, I'm really interested in how you proposed. Your <laughs> oh, no. I mean, it's like this epic story, right? And I just, I just, I can't, I can't let you go without hearing it firsthand. 
Oh my gosh. I haven't been asked about that in a long time. You must have gone to page like 22 of Google. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, let's see. So it is 2006, six or seven. And uh, my, you know, the, the SEO Moz blog is sort of taking off and it's popular. I got an email from this guy in Nashville, Tennessee, who was running a website called mysuperproposal.com. Um, and he, yeah, this, this, this kid had this, I mean, I was a kid too, right. But, uh, this kid had this, this idea that he was going to raise money to buy a Super Bowl ad and, and, uh, use the ad to propose to his girlfriend. And his, he emails me and he's like, yeah, I was going to do this. My girlfriend found out about it. Um, and so I've been reading your blog. Like I really love SEO Moz. I've been reading your blog and you've been writing about at the time I did not, um, talk about Geraldine publicly, except to call her mystery guest. So I, I just referenced her as mystery guest, but he said, you know, would you like to take over the website and, you know, the campaign and maybe use it to propose to mystery guests? Cause it seems like things are getting serious between you two. <laughs> um, and I don't know what it was, but I, I agreed. I was like, Oh yeah, this sounds like fun. Let's do it. Let's do it. And then I don't know, fast forward a couple months later, um, I had taken over the website, done a little bit of blogging there, and then suddenly it was getting all this press and attention and getting featured in all these magazines. And I don't know, Ad Age ran a poll of like, what, what, what Super Bowl ads are you looking forward to most? And the, the Super Bowl proposal ad, you know, the one from this website that I was now running was the... Number one. And in all this publicity, Geraldine had no idea. No, right? no, no. So like I was, you know, I was getting up at like 6 a.m. and running outside of our apartment to take a phone call secretly with like, you know, CBS in New York or whatever for to be on their radio show and, and talk about this thing. Right. And I had to, you know, rely on the fact I didn't do any local media so that she might not hear my voice. Right. All that kind of stuff. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and. Uh, I I hid where I was from and I hid my identity, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I even did a, there was like a weird, gosh, some sort of television program that like flew, they flew their crew to Seattle and set up in a hotel near the airport. And I drove down there and like did this interview where they blacked out my face and, you know, they had me like, um, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, um, Target, I assume that NDA is no longer in place. I, but so Target um, uh, flew me out to Minneapolis to film a Super Bowl commercial. They were basically like, hey, we want to sponsor this. Like we think this would be awesome. So I flew out to Minneapolis, filmed a commercial with them, which was a very weird experience. I, I proposed to Geraldine on camera no less than 300 times. Right. <laughs> so like, just, right. It was like 10 hours, uh, nine, 10 hours of filming just again and again and again, take after take after take. Whew, intense. Uh, and then flew back to Seattle. I told her it was a business trip, right, for work, whatever. And um, Target ended up the, the week before they decided not to run it. Thank God. Oh, can you imagine if I was like some weird pop culture footnote known <laughs> for like Target? Uh, uh. Anyway, so very glad that did not work out. Seemed like a good idea when I was whatever, 28 or 29. But, um and so instead, I filmed, a, I, I made another version. I had had a lot of practice at this point. I made a local version of the commercial, ran it on a local TV commercial during her favorite show, which at the time was Veronica Mars. And it was live TV era, right? So we still were watching commercials with television. Thank goodness if Netflix era had come around, it never would have worked. 
um, and then hit a camera in the room so you can go to YouTube and like watch her freak out when I propose on TV. Um, Super cool, epic proposal really story. Cool. Yeah, that beats beats anyone I've ever heard, man. And 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 <laughs> happily married all these years later, it worked. Yeah, it it worked. I will say this: it is very not Geraldine and I. Like we are much lower key people than this. It is a strange, random happenstance, and also proposals, gentlemen and uh, ladies, all to all of you out there. It's not a competition. A proposal should be <laughs> a thing. I believe you really should discuss it beforehand. She could have said no. We didn't. We didn't have the conversation. You know, we were like, we were still in the old school, like Gen X. You know, oh yeah, I think you're not supposed to talk about it beforehand. Screw that. No, have open emotional conversations with your partner before you do ridiculous things. <laughs> that would be my advice now. I love it. Thank you for taking time to share that story with us. I really did. But Geraldine and I are still very happily married, so that is a wonderful thing. It did work out. That's awesome. Great. Great stuff. Rand, anything else you want to share with us or anything else you'd like to talk about before we part ways today? Um, I, you know, I would, I would just love to share with all of your listeners that I, I and so many other Americans tremendously appreciate the hardship and the sacrifice that you are going through to make our lives better and healthier and happier and longer. Um, and I don't think you get nearly enough credit for that. And I know that the systems that are in place work against you in so many thousands of ways. And, and I think that for all of us who have empathy for what they're going through and, and for all of you out there, the, you know, the, the things that we can do to fight against that are to use our, our personal platforms. I, I certainly hope to keep using mine and, and would be happy to amplify messages that can be helpful and, um, to use our voices uh, in our democracy, right? To to vote for people and um, uh, initiatives. You know, we I think we we think too often about, you know, oh, who am I going to vote for for president, and too little about, hey, what am I going to vote for on this local referendum? But we should really consider both uh, because both have very big impacts on our lives and livelihoods. And and I think that's uh, something, you know, in the next couple of months we're going to have that opportunity to make a difference there as well. So I would, uh, I would encourage that. And please, anybody I can be helpful to, my email is rand at sparktoro.com and I would love to help you. Excellent perspective, Rand. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've really, really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit and hear your point of view. And I know our listeners will feel the same. Eric, Jane, Jason, thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, hope we get to do this again sometime. Thanks, Rand. <laughs>